Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not be afraid. This morning I want to spend just a few minutes before we jump into the message and share with you a prophecy update of what we see happening in the world today and Israel in particular. But before I even do that, I want to just step back and uh, congratulate a couple this morning that uh, this is a, not a normal occasion. It's an occasion worth celebrating for sure. But this morning, yeah, you see it coming. I can see it on your face. <laughs> this morning, we want to say congratulations to a couple that is going to celebrate their 60th wedding anniversary this Thursday, Ed and Barbara. What a privilege. What a privilege to have you with us. And what a privilege your testimony is of your faith in Christ. 60 years of marriage that the Lord has honored. What was that, Barbara? To him. To him. <laughs> oh, that's a private discussion. I'll let you guys handle that. So. But we are thrilled to have you with us. We're so thrilled to celebrate with you. 60 years. Uh, that's older than I am. Uh, I'm only 35, so that's good. So. <laughs> All right. I want to take just a minute uh, before we jump into the message in Romans chapter 6 this morning, and I want to just share with you, uh, I think, needed information from the Word of God as we try to gain a perspective of what is happening in the world today that we need to have. First of all, we need to remember that God commands us, just like Pastor Danny said in the beginning, the most oft-repeated command in the entirety of Scripture is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And so God tells us, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. So how do we understand what is going on in the world today? What is happening in Israel specifically? Let me just say this up front, a kind of a clarifying comment that one, the issue, the war, the conflict that we see taking place in Israel today is not secular. It is spiritual. It is not political. It is prophetic. That the ultimate source behind this war that is creating this war is Satan. Satan hates everything that God loves. In fact, the word Hamas means zeal or strength. And it represents a satanic hatred, an unbelievable, diabolical, unspeakable hatred for the Jews. So the issue really surrounds around the topic of, of really who owns the land. That's kind of the question that oftentimes people are, are thinking about. More than 4,000 years ago, God did something he's never done for any other people group in the world. He gave a people a land. Through Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, God promised the land of Israel. 
And they have not always occupied that land, but they've always owned that land. It is their land by God-given right. And even the Gaza Strip, which is about 25 miles wide or long and six miles wide, is part of that land grant that God has given to the Jews. I said they've always owned it because God gave it to them, but they haven't always, always occupied the land. Let me just kind of now put us in perspective of where are we at in prophecy right now, because this is not a political issue, it's a prophecy issue. In 135 A.D., the Bar Kokhba revolt, Simon Bar Kokhba, revolted against the Romans. In 135 A.D., the Romans said, we've had enough. What became known as the Bar Kokhba revolt caused the Jewish people to be uh, dispersed around the world and kicked out of their land. The emperor Hadrian, the Roman emperor at that time, renamed the land to Palestina, or from the Hebrew word Philistine. And the reason he did that, because he wanted to eradicate the memory of the Jews from their land, so that no one would remember this was Israel's land. Now, the Philistines or the Palestinians that we see there today are not the Philistines or the Canaanites of Israel's day when they first came into land. God wiped those people out. They neither represent one religious group or one ethnic group. They are, in fact, a, a group of people that have come from other countries through waves over the years, and there are people that are there that do not belong. The land, land does not belong to them. It belongs to the nation of Israel. So in 135, they were kicked out of their land. In fact, it was a death sentence if you're a Jew and you're found in Jerusalem. They didn't have a land. They didn't have a government. They didn't have a military. And they were dispersed around the world. And then something happened. Something happened almost 2,000 years later, 1,813 years to be exact. Prophecy became true. A promise that God had spoken to the nation of Israel, which is a super sign for us today that shows us that God is at work and we are very near the end of the world. In 1948, the nation of Israel became a nation once again. After almost 2,000 years of being dispersed around the world, not having a land, nor a government, nor a military, they came together, they were reborn as a nation once again. God promised this numerous times throughout the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 11, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, and so on, God promised, one day, Israel, I'm going to restore you to your land. But God also promised that when he did this, he was going to bring the Jews from all around the world back to their homeland. I've been to Israel twice, and that is exactly what has happened. We are seeing Jews from all around the world surging, pouring into their land that God had given them through their forefather Abraham more than 4,000 years ago. In fact, something very significant, not only did they become a nation in 1948, just as God had promised, but something else happened. Prior to the year 2006, not very long ago, the greatest number or population of Jews was found in the U.S. As of 2006, the greatest number of Jews now live in Israel. 
And God said that when he brought the people together, his people, that that is when we'll know something or the stage is being set for something very significant to happen. So what does this mean for us today as we look at what is going on in Israel? Psalm 122 verse 6 says, pray for peace in Jerusalem. We need to be praying for Jerusalem. We need to be praying for Israel. And if you're not a supporter of Israel, you need to support Israel. You need to pray for Israel. Why? Why? Because when God gave the land to Abraham, he made a promise. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he said, Abraham, I'm not only speaking to you, but I'm speaking to all your descendants. He said, those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. Every nation throughout history that has ever come against the nation of Israel has been cursed. They have experienced God's judgment in some form or fashion. Israel is committed to wipe out Hamas. But the real issue is not Hamas. The real issue is Iran. The real issue is Russia. And I say that intentionally because what is happening today is we're seeing the stage rapidly being set for what is called Gog of Magog. Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 39. It is an invasion in which Russia, geographically it is oftentimes thought to be Gog, and Magog, all the amalgamized nations underneath the Arab nations who are going to team together with Russia, and they're going to conspire through secret conspiracy to invade the land of Israel. Now, some people will say, well, is this Gog and Magog? Because that's exactly what happened, the Hamas. And we know that they're, they're, they're uh, fueled and they're, they're uh, financed behind Iran, which is formerly Persia. And we know that Russia is involved in this as well. So is this what happened? It was a surprise attack. Nobody saw it coming. This is not Gog and Magog. God says that when Gog and Magog happen, it will be unmistakable to the world. One thing that God says over and over again in the book of Ezekiel, he says these things are going to happen. That is, this surprise attack and a number of other things are going to happen, and God's going to intervene supernaturally. When Gog and Magog happens, it says that Israel will be caught off guard as well. But when that happens, nothing like what we saw happen here will take place. In fact, something just the opposite. Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 38, there will be an earthquake in the land of Israel. The mountains will be thrown down. Every wall will be thrown to the ground. Every man's sword will turn against his brother. In other words, the invading armies who, who conspire secretly to, secretly to come from the north to invade Israel, God's going to turn them against one another. There will be pestilence, and God will rain down torrential rain, which will be hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And then here's why. Here's the result that God intends. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. So what we're seeing today is not Gog and Magog. It is the precursor. It is preparing the way for it. Why? Because Russia today, though we thought it was defeated years ago, has in fact strengthened and they have created alliances now with Iran and other Arab nations unlike any other time in history. What is happening is God is setting the stage for the end times. So what does this mean for Israel today? Let me just make some statements that you need to know. Israel will not be defeated, nor will they be displaced. 
they will be victorious. Why? Because God promised in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And when they came back to their land in 1948, they will never be removed ever again. So what we're seeing today is not Gog and Mega, but we are seeing the precursor to that. So let me kind of now zero it down to what does this mean for you and for me? One of the greatest outlines of prophecy that is given in Scripture was given to us by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus outlines events that are going to take place during what is known as the tribulation. But I want to talk about that briefly because those events are going to be, <clears throat> are going to, the prophecy of those events, a uh, shadow of anticipating those events is going to take place, be, place before. And Jesus is going to use a term that helps us understand that, at least for all the mothers here. He used the term called birth pains. Now, when you're a mom and you have birth pains, you know that, uh-oh, something is happening. And those birth pains at first are maybe mild and they're intermittent. You don't know when they're going to happen. But as time goes on, they become stronger and they're closer together. And you have more and more birth pains. Why? Well, it tells you that you're about to have a child. Jesus uses that metaphor in Matthew chapter 24 when he talks about the signs of what it's going to look like in the world when the tribulation comes. Now, I say that this is very important for us to understand. Matthew 24, Jesus is talking specifically about the tribulation, a seven-year period, which we'll talk more later on. But we see the anticipatory signs of that, the birth pains, before that time comes. So in Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 through 8, Jesus says this, You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Are we hearing about those today? Interesting, the wars and rumors of wars is a Hebrew idiom, means world war. And the idea, he says, of hearing wars is not simply like hearing wars, oh, we hear about war in Israel. The idea of hearing war there, war there is the word akul. It has the idea of hearing the noise of sound or the noise of war right now. Not in a distance or on the news, on TV, but hearing it here. This is talking about the tribulation. But we're already hearing wars and rumors of wars today. Listen to what Jesus says next. And this is for us as well. See that you are not frightened. For these things must take place, but this is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But then he says this, but all these things are the beginning of birth pains. What we're seeing today, I think, is the shadow, the advancing shadow of prophecy that is going to be fulfilled through the tribulation. And so don't be surprised today if we begin to see more and more of these things happen. We're talking about, in Matthew 24, he talks about betrayal. He talks about deception. There are going to be many false messiahs. Interesting, when you look at our history as a nation, about the year 1840 or so, uh, our, our nation was riddled with all kinds of cults, deceptive, deceptive beliefs of trying to misconstrue what Scripture teaches and who Jesus is. And they've advanced and taken root since that time. We're seeing the precursor to all these signs of Jesus' uh, tribulation he talks about and his second coming advancing quickly. So where are we at today? I would just say this to you. I would say the words of Jesus, do not be frightened. Do not be frightened. If you're a believer and you're hearing these words, God wants you to know you do not need to be frightened at all. If you're not a believer, you need to be frightened. You need to be terrified. Because God says this is going to happen, and it will happen. 
And the best way you can be prepared for that is exactly like Pastor Danny said in the beginning. This is a time to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is the Prince of Peace. You'll never have peace without him. He is your salvation. You'll never have salvation without him. He is the only Savior. There is no other. But if you're a believer and you're hearing these words, you need to know that your destiny is already sealed. We're going to talk about it this morning a little bit. But God has already promised eternal salvation and glory in heaven, the hope of glory in you, Christ in you, because of your faith in Christ. So do not be afraid. Pray for Israel and look forward to God moving in ways that we're going to see him work that will be absolutely amazing. Will you take a moment right now? Well, let's just pray for the nation of Israel. Let's pray for the body of Christ that we would be faithful to God's gospel. We would be faithful to what he says is going to happen in response. Father, I pray right now for the nation of Israel. We ask that you would strengthen this nation that has come through unbelievable torment and pain, unspeakable evil. We cannot fathom, but Lord, we pray that you'd come against that evil. That just as you promised in your word that you'd bless those who blessed them and curse them who cursed them, Lord, we pray that you would keep your word and that you'd bring cursing on them in such a way that it would eradicate the evil. And Lord, we pray for those among them that perhaps are captives to the will of those that are evil, that you'd open the eyes of their hearts and cause them to realize too that they need the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to forgive them of their sins and change their life. Father, we pray that you'd do that. We pray that you do that in the, in the lives of the Jews today that are hurting, that are struggling, that are wondering why this is happening. We pray against the spiritual forces of darkness that are coming against this nation. And Father, we pray for our nation as well. We are in an unprecedented way, shoulder to shoulder with the nation of Israel, militarily on the ground right now with them, militarily in the sea with our ships, militarily with the help of finances as well as weapons. Lord, we then ask that you would bless us. We know, we know we are not a nation that is worthy of your blessing, your grace. We've turned our backs on you. And we ask you to forgive us. And we ask, Lord, that you would raise up a revival in this nation, that you would change the hearts of those that are leaders that are, are bent against you. And you would break them and cause them, Lord, to turn to you. That you would bring men and women and children around our nation and you would bring them to a saving knowledge of you. That you would break this deception that Satan has placed over the eyes of this nation and give us a heart that loves and serves you. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would choose to take you at your word and not be afraid. We cast all our fears upon you, our cares. Now, Lord, I pray, help us to be bold. Help us to be faithful. Help us to walk in your will, in your strength. It is in your name 
And for your name's sake we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, let's shift gears here. We may get a little longer than I want to, um, but that doesn't matter. Okay, so here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to take your notes out, and there's an outline there for you to follow. And on the very back right there, there's also uh, a special place there for you to just put some thoughts, a little extra room there, thoughts that as you listen to the message from God's Word, as it impacts your life, that you can take with you as you write them down. All right, so let me just kind of begin our time here. Um, It was the year 1862. The 16th president of our nation, Abraham Lincoln, on September 22nd, gave a presidential proclamation known as the Emancipation Proclamation. At that time, he declared by the power uh, invested in him as the president of the United States that all slaves were now forever free. It would not be until a number of very painful and bloody months later that the slaves of the South would actually claim that precious freedom. One of those slaves is a very prominent figure in history we know as Booker T. Washington. He was nine years old when the news of this emancipation reached his plantation in southwest Virginia. In 1901, in his autobiography called Up From Slavery, he recalled that life-altering day. He said, the most distinct thing that I now recall in connection with that scene was that some man, seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a, a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After reading, we were told that we were all free to go where, uh, when and where we please. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant and that this was a day for which she had so long prayed for, but fearing that she would never live to see. Booker goes on to describe the rippling effect that this news had on the many slaves. He says that within hours, within a few hours, the wild rejoicing ceased. And a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters. The actual possession of this newfound freedom was a more serious thing, he said, than they expected to find it. Now what happens next is both incredibly sad and bewildering. After a brief period of celebration, many of the former slaves that had just heard they were now free returned to the fields to continue their servitude as sharecroppers. Though they had been officially declared free, little had changed in terms of their practical outworking of that freedom. You see, legal emancipation had declared their freedom, but the turning of that legal status into actual experience would require another kind of change, a change deep from within. 
And many of those slaves found it too fearful, too daunting to step into a life of the unknown, a life of freedom. And they found it instead to remain in a life, though painful, yet predictable, in a place of slavery. Now, from the perspective of those of us who have never known slavery like this, I suspect we find ourselves in a bit of awe. We're perplexed. Why would anyone remain in a place of slavery when they know that they've just been declared officially, legally, free? And yet when we begin to really think about what just took place for the slaves in the South, and we relate it to our own lives, we realize that we're not so far from their own experience as we might think. You see, for those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ and believe the word of God that says that Jesus rescued us from the power and the penalty of sin, he freed us. Yet there are many believers today that continue to live in the slavery, the tyranny, the shackles of their slavery to sin. Why is that? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is because we believe, we rejoice when we hear that we've been saved from our sin. We have been rescued from the power, the penalty of sin. Christ has saved us. And there is this, this, this excitement, this sense of overwhelming joy. But that joy begins to turn to a sense of gloom when we begin to realize, I don't know how to live this new life of freedom out. You see, I've lived a life of slavery to sin so long. It's predictable. It's comfortable. It's not easy. It's painful, but it's predictable. And quite frankly, I don't know how to live out this new life of freedom that Christ has given me. Though I want it, I aspire to it, I cannot make it happen in my life. I don't know how to do it. And so we begin to realize a number of sobering truths. One, we begin to realize this whole process of living free in Christ does not come easily or naturally. We begin to realize that it takes time. And we realize sooner or later that it is impossible to live our freedom out in our own strength to make it become a reality. Because just like salvation, it requires God's power from start to finish. We cannot live this freedom out in our own power. And the Bible calls this process of living this freedom out sanctification. A gradual, internal transformation from a life of bondage to a life of maturity and freedom. Sanctification. I want to talk to you about that this morning. The practical outworking of this freedom that Christ has purchased for you and how we make that become a reality in our lives. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture that I believe is so desperately needed. For those of us who feel that we're stuck in the tyranny of slavery and don't know how to get out. Now, let me just kind of give you a, a review very quickly. Up to this point, Romans chapter 1 through 5, really 3 through 5, where Paul really begins to teach this whole idea of justification by faith. Up to this point, uh, in chapter 5, we're left, if you will, standing in assurance of grace and rejoicing in the hope of glory. We are like the slaves. 
that have just heard the news of our emancipation, of proclamation, or proclamation of emancipation. We're free. We formerly belonged to Adam, the author of sin. Now we belong to Jesus, the author of our salvation. And so Paul leaves us in chapter 5 with a sense of triumph and security in God's abundant, overflowing grace. Why? Because we, by our faith in Christ, have been justified. And we saw that last week. We've seen it repeatedly, that this whole idea that we are justified by our faith means that God declares us, believing sinners, to be right with him the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith alone through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we've been emancipated from sin. We've been declared by the highest authority that we are now officially free. But there's something missing, isn't there? How many of you, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, there was a sense of exaltation, a joy? I'm free at last. I have peace. I have joy. I have hope. I have life. But soon thereafter, you came off the mountaintop, that joy, that incredible experience, and you began to hit the valley of life once again, and you said, oh, man, what happened? How did I lose that? Where to go? How do I recapture it again? What went wrong? Nothing went wrong. You're just beginning to live out what is called sanctification. And sanctification is not always a mountaintop experience. Justification is a mountaintop experience. Sanctification oftentimes is a deep valley experience. What has happened is that you are now going to learn to live out what is sanctification. But what Paul is doing in chapters 3 through 5 primarily is saying, listen, you've been justified by faith in Christ. And it's as though Paul jumps from justification to glorification. In other words, he jumps from earth to heaven and bypasses sanctification entirely. And so we, like the slaves of the Civil War, are left going, well, how, how, how do I work this, this, this freedom out? I know that I'm going to go to heaven, glorification. I know that I've been made right with God, justification. But between the two, there is life that needs to be lived, and I don't know how to do that. And so Paul is going to show us in chapters 6 and 7 and following of Romans of how then do we live out this newfound freedom that Christ has purchased for us. So we're going to look at just four verses today. I really wanted to go through 14 verses <laughs> But uh, I realized with the, the update and with how much we want to cover here, uh, we're going to cover four verses. So open with me to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read for you these four verses. And just listen as you hear these words of what the Apostle Paul is saying. And in the back of your mind, listen for the answers because we're going to bring them out. But listen for the answers of how he says, now, how do you connect justification with sanctification? How do you connect the truth that I'm free now with the reality of how to live that out in my life? What should we say then, he says in verse 1? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, 
We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Let's unpack these verses. What is Paul saying? He's showing us how we are to die to sin, the old life of slavery, and now how to live this new life of grace called freedom. And there are four key thoughts that we're going to look at today and next week as well. Four key thoughts that this passage brings out. They're keys, if you will, that unlock the shackles of your slavery. So let's look at them real quick here. The first one is this. He says there are four things that you need to know. He says there's something you need to guard. There is something that you need to know. And there is something you need to consider. And there is something you need to present. Now, all these concepts, these ideas, these truths come from this passage. But we're going to look at just two of them today. And it is this. There is something I need to guard. And there is something I need to know. Would you say that with me? There is something I need to guard. And there is something I need to know. One more time. There is something I need to guard. And there is something I need to know. Something I need to guard and something I need to know. So what is it that we need to guard? We see it in verses 1 and 2. What should we say then, he says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Let me kind of put this in perspective, what Paul is saying here. He is saying that when you begin to preach a gospel of grace, justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not a gospel of works, but a gospel of grace, that when you do that, that's risky business. Because inevitably there are going to be those who are going to misconstrue, misunderstand, twist and pervert what you just said, what the gospel is, and they're going to think that grace is not a license to become like Christ, but a license instead to sin. That I can live like hell all week long. And then I can go to church and I'll be good. Then I can step back into Monday and live like hell all over again and then step back on Sunday and live like grace all over again. It's a license to sin. And some people are going to pervert the gospel thinking that's what we can do. So the person who says, you know what, this grace thing is great. I can live however I want. Paul says that person does not understand grace. Are we to continue in sin? So the grace may increase, may it never be. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said it this way, if if you take Christ out of Christianity, Christianity is dead. If you remove grace from the gospel, the gospel is gone. If people do not like the doctrine of grace, give them all the more of it. In other words... He understood what the Apostle Paul understood is that because it is risky business, that does not mean that we should not preach a gospel of grace. It is worth the risk. So Paul says, what should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So how is that so? How are we who have died to sin, still live in it. Paul says this, if you're dead to sin, how can you be alive to sin simultaneous? You can't. 
Now, we're going to wade into some things that are very important, so fundamental for us to understand. We'll get into it more next week, but this week I want you to understand that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ if you've trusted him as your Savior. In fact, I want you to say that with me. I'm a, I am dead to sin, but alive to Christ. I am dead to sin, but alive to Christ. That is true about your life. Now, experientially, you're going, but I still feel like sin is very much alive. Slavery is very much a reality of my everyday life. But the fundamental truth that God wants you to know is that you need to guard against what true grace is, and you need to know that you're dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And if you're dead to sin, that means you cannot be alive to it at the same time. Now, you're saying, John, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. What are you saying here? Bear with me. Let's keep going. You need to understand this. So he says in a rhetorical question, how should we who died to sin still live in it? Well, when you trusted Christ, a spiritual reality, a fact, altered your life forever. It altered who you are forever. It altered your character, your nature forever. It altered your standing before God forever. When you came to Christ, God declared you his child. He gave you a new life, a new person. You have a new, a new character, a new nature inside of you. And therefore, because now you're alive to Christ, you're dead to sin. That is a true statement about who you are. Now, I know you're probably going, but, 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 that's okay, just hold on. Bear with me. So Paul is saying this. He's not saying that, but I still sin in my life. He's not talking about the occasional sin that all of us experience. None of you here today are perfect. None of us have arrived. We are imperfect people living out this perfect life that God has given us through Christ. But we don't know how to live it out perfectly. And so we still mess up. So Paul is not talking about the person who occasionally sins here. This idea of someone who continues to sin, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? This is the person who intentionally and habitually makes sin a pattern of their life. This is the person that misunderstands grace. says, you know what? God's going to forgive me. I'm going to go to heaven. And so therefore, I can just live how I want. That person does not understand what biblical grace is. They don't understand God's grace. So what they need to understand is that grace never justifies our sin. It always justifies the sinner. In other words, God did not give you his grace to, to, to sin, but to save you from sin. In other words, put it this way. When you say, I had the freedom, I have grace in my life. Yes, that's freedom. But that does not mean it's freedom to live how you want. Grace that is true grace that is operative in your life will always make you more like Christ, not less like Christ. I need to say that. Because there are believers today that say, you know what? I, I, I'm in, in the grace of Jesus. I can live how I want. I can do all these things and because I'm in the grace of Jesus. And therefore, they can pollute, they can distort, they can bring harm to the very name of Christ, 
all in the justification of their sin because they say they're living in grace. That person does not understand grace. If true grace is operative in your life, guess what? It's going to work itself out inside your life on the outside. It's going to change you. So grace never justifies the sin. It always justifies the sinner. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, well-known theologian of World War II, wrote a fantastic book, Cost of Discipleship. And in there, he calls grace that justifies sin as cheap grace. Cheap grace. The person who believes they can live however they want believes in cheap grace. That is not biblical grace at all. In the 1900s, the early 1900s, there was a Russian monk by the name of Rasputin. He was a religious advisor to the Romanov family, the last imperial dynasty to rule in Russia. Now, what makes Rasputin fascinating is this, that he taught that salvation came through an, a repeated experience of sin and repentance. Listen to his argument. He argued that because those who sin more require more forgiveness, those who sin with abandon as, as they repent will experience greater joy. And therefore, he said, it is then a, the duty of a believer to sin. I would just simply say this. Rasputin obviously, obviously never read the book of Romans, if the Bible at all. Because the Apostle Paul says then, he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Make it out, oh, he says, may it never be. But you see, that's the risk of grace. That is the risk of grace. Let me just kind of step back and uh, give you a perspective biblically of a couple of important doctrines that Paul is going to be driving home through the book of Romans that I want you to catch as we unpack this whole idea of justification and sanctification. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. He says that you are justified as a gift by his grace. So justification is what? It's a gift. By what? By works? No, by grace. Justification is a gift by his grace. Not by works, but by grace. So what does justification mean? We've talked about it. It means that God declares me right with him as a believing sinner because of my faith in Jesus Christ. But we oftentimes confuse justification with other things that God does in our lives. We confuse justification with regeneration. That is that when God saves me. So when God saves you, that is regeneration, God gives you a new life. That's not justification. Justification, God gives you a new standing. There's a world of difference between the two. And sometimes we confuse justification with forgiveness. We think, well, well justification means God forgave me. No, it means far more than that. Because if it was just forgiveness, that means you'd need to be justified again when you sin again. By the way, are you going to sin again? You probably will. So, Justification does not mean that God is going to forgive you again. Justification means that God has permanently rescued you from the slavery or the tyranny of sin. He's forgiven you once and for all, past, present, and future. Justification, he's declared you right before him based on the righteousness of his son and your faith in him. He's declared you right for him, before him forever. That's justification. And we need to understand how that works because it's so critical what Paul is saying here. He's saying that when you live this justified life in, out, what it means is that 
when you are justified, it's going to change your life. And that God is going to begin to work out that declared righteousness to become a reality in your life. You see, God does not declare you righteous by your faith in him and then leave you there. But the Bible teaches something very important. It says it over and over and over again. It says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. For God who began a good work in you will, will work it out in your life. So the point is this, is that when we give our life to Christ, God doesn't simply declare you righteous. Now then he begins to make that, uh, that righteousness operative in reality in your life. So when a person truly has grace in their life, it's going to begin to change them from the inside out. And you're going to begin to see changes in your life. In other words, grace is never a license to sin or an excuse for wrong behavior. It is, in fact, the evidence of a changed life, a new nature, a new life. That's what justification and sanctification come together and begin to work. So what what Paul is saying is this. Paul is saying that God has declared you righteous, and the life that is declared righteous will then become righteous as well. And that's called sanctification. God working in you to conform you to the very image of his son, Romans 8, 29, to change your life. We talk about this often, but we all know it. Those who have stepped into this life of grace, that when we trusted Christ, and he got rid of all the baggage, he gave us forgiveness. As we begin to come off this mountaintop, so to speak, of justification, and we're living this new life in Christ out, even though we come into the valley of hardship and difficulty and struggle, we know there's something different going on at the same time. It's not the same valley as we once knew. There's something different. What is that difference? The difference is, though, I'm stepping in the same valley I used to live in. Now I begin to realize there's something operative inside of me, something changing me on the inside out that wasn't there before. Because I begin to see this new life of declared righteousness become a life of practical righteousness worked out in my life. I begin to have different desires, different way of seeing things. I don't want to do the things I used to do down in this valley. I want to live a different life. Why? Because God is working that righteousness out to become a reality in your life called sanctification. Sanctification. So Paul says, listen, when you preach grace, this is risky business. But you need to understand, you need to guard against a wrong understanding of grace. It is not an excuse or a license to sin. And in fact, when you have true grace, it's going to begin to change you from the inside out. So you need to guard against a wrong or misconstrued idea of grace and begin to live this life of sanctification out that God has given you. So something you need to guard. Second, he says you need something you need to know. Paul says there is something that you need to really know. In fact, he's going to express this idea several times in the passages that unfolds for us in chapter, or verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9. He's going to say there's something you need to know, something you need to know. So what he's saying here is this. Let me just look at what we're going to look at in verses 3 and 4 today. He says, I want you to know something that is an absolute fact. I want you to know that you are now identified with Christ in his baptism. You see, Paul never said something just to give you information. He always taught to give you transformation. And so what he's about to share here is designed... That when we really understand it, when we know it, it's going to begin to work out that transformation in our lives. And he says in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his 
death. Paul is saying this, that when you trusted Christ, you were baptized into his death. Now, this word baptism, or the idea of baptism, is, is, has two basic meanings behind it. One, it has a metaphorical or a figurative meaning. That's what he's talking about here. Do you not know that you were baptized into Christ's death when you trusted him? But it also has a literal meaning. There is a physical baptism that takes place in our lives as well as believers. So the, the figurative is what he has in mind here. And he's saying this, that when you trusted Christ, uh, figuratively, you were buried with Christ, you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, and you rose again with Christ. You were baptized into his death. Now, let me help you understand what Paul is saying here. Because I need to connect some threads to what he began in chapter 5 that is going to continue in chapter 6. In chapter 5, he said that we are, uh, we, there's a corporate solidarity, a corporate identity in which we are tied to Adam. In chapter 5, verse, Adam, or verse 12, he says, because Adam sinned, all sinned. Therefore, there was a corporate sense of identity. Adam was the author of sin, and therefore, we're the prodigy of that author of sin. Now, Paul is still teaching the same idea of corporate solidarity. He's going to continue this thread. Now he's switching gears. He says, now he says, we no longer belong to the author of sin, Adam. Now we belong to a different author, the author of salvation. Now we're talking about a corporate solidarity in Christ. And how'd that happen? He says, because when the moment you trusted Christ, now you are identified with Christ. And that's what the word baptism means. And now I'm identified with Christ. So, the moment you trusted Christ, you are now identified with him through his death, burial, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He says, he says For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, lift, and was lifted up for me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is Paul saying? He's saying that there is a corporate solidarity, an identity that I have with Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection, I identify with that. Now I belong to the author of salvation, Christ. That took place as a reality in your life the moment you trusted Christ. For me, that happened in 1973. I died in 1973. And I was identified with Christ through his death, his burial, and his resurrection more than 50 years ago when I trusted Christ. And God began to work in my life. And he began to change me. He's saying 50 years ago, how old is this guy? He's not 35. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. So Paul has in mind, first of all, this figurative or this metaphorical idea of baptism, but he also has the idea of a literal sense of baptism. He's saying that when a believer, and the Bible teaches this, that when a believer comes to Christ, when a person trusts Christ, what happens next? Well, Jesus said in the Great Commission, uh, he said that we're to be baptized. We're to literally, physically be baptized. And that baptism is an outward symbol of an inward truth. It expresses to the world my faith that I am now identified with Jesus who was, who was crucified on the cross, who was buried, and on the third day rose again. I 
proclaimed to the world that I am now identified with my Savior. I died to sin. My sin was buried in Christ, and I was raised to a new and victorious life of freedom in Christ. That's what physical baptism represents. It says, I belong to Christ, and I want the world to know this. Now, the question is this, and there are some people who believe this, and I just want to be very clear about this. There are some people who tell you, well, that means you have to be baptized to be saved. Nowhere in all of Scripture does Paul ever or the Bible ever teach that you must be baptized to be saved. We say, John, that's not what I've heard. Then the burden of proof lies on you to demonstrate from Scripture where Bible teaches really we must be baptized to be saved. Nowhere does Paul teach that. Nowhere does the New Testament teach that. Nowhere does the Old Testament teach that. Paul has just carefully unpacked justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 of Romans. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by works. Well, why do we get baptized then? Because you're expressing to the world a public witness that I have placed my trust, I have surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And I want the world to know that the old me is dead, it's gone, it was buried, it was crucified on the cross, and rose up into a new life, a new person, a child of God in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. So Paul wants us to know, he says, don't you know that you were buried with Christ? Have you forgotten what baptism means? It means that you're now identified with your Savior. You now belong to the author of salvation, not the author of sin any longer. So he says, I want you to know something. I want you to know that you've been buried with Christ in his death. Second, he says, I want you to know this, that you have a, because of that, you have a new life in Christ. Verse 4, he says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So he says, I want you to know that because you are identified with Jesus' burial, now you're identified with his new life. You've been given a newness of life. You've been given a brand new life. Now listen to what Paul is saying here because this is very important to, to drive home this whole idea of corporate solidarity. Paul's already said it, but we need to think about it and own it deeply. What Paul is saying this, though we cannot understand it, that somehow when Christ died on the cross and he was buried in the grave and he rose again from the third day, we participated in that. I wasn't there, you weren't there, but the moment you place your faith in Christ, you participated in his crucifixion, in his burial, and his resurrection. You were identified with that as much as that is a historical fact. Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world. And Jesus died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again. Just as much as those are historical facts. So Paul says it is a fact that you now belong to Christ and you have new life in him. That's what he's saying. Even though that took place 2,000 years ago, it is true nonetheless for you in your life. 
and you've been given a newness of life. And this newness of life that he talks about refers to a quality or a character. So just as sin characterized your life before you came to Christ, so now righteousness will characterize your life in this new walk, this new life with Christ. So the Bible says numerous things about our new life in Christ. Let me just give you a few of them. The prophet Ezekiel in the New Covenant says that we will receive a new heart, Ezekiel 36, 26. He says in Ezekiel 18, 31, that we receive a new spirit. Psalm chapter 4, 40, verse 3 says that we receive a new song. I remember literally the moment that when I came to Christ and began to walk with him, music was different. Was it different for you? I began to see the world like I'd never seen before, colors and, and a sense of life that I'd never seen before. But music was transformed for me. Suddenly, I wanted to hear the music of the Lord. Why? Because he gave me a new song. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17 says that we receive a new name. You have a new name. You don't like your name? That's okay. God's got a new one for you when you get to heaven. And you're going to like it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that we are a new creation. So Paul's point simply is this, is that where there is new life, there's going to be a new way of living. That's what he's saying. So God has declared you to be righteous. But that declaration is going to now work itself out into transformation. Because God is at work in you, both the will and the work according to his good purpose. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 and Philippians 2.13. God makes that promise for you in your life. So maybe you're stuck right now. Some of you are going, you know what? I've just lived with this sin for so long in my life. I felt like these shackles are going to always be a part of my life. I'll never escape this bondage of slavery that I feel. But Jesus said, if the Son of Man shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. God intends for you to live a life of freedom. And so what Paul is going to begin to do as we continue through this passage is show us then how to work out the practical part of this declaration of our emancipation proclamation. It's called sanctification. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to come natural. It's going to take time. It's a process. But just as salvation was God's work in your life from beginning to end, so is sanctification. It is God's work in you from beginning to end. You know what that means? I want you to do this, girl, because... (sighs) You're like, why? Why am I doing that? Because you can breathe a great sigh of relief. (sighs) It's not up to me. It's up to God. God's going to work this out in my life. Though I may feel hopeless, though I feel that God may give up on me, though I may stumble, God said, I will never, never, never give up on you. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. For God is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. (sighs) Thank you, God. Thank you. God says, I gave you the gift of righteousness. Now I'm going to work out that gift of righteousness in your life. Just trust me, follow me, obey me, and I'm going to work it out in your life. Let me close with this. I'll never forget, there was a night many years ago, a spring night. I went for a walk. I was stationed in the Navy on a base, and 
I remember looking at the starlit sky. The stars were beautiful. I'd only recently recommitted my life to the Lord. And I was surrounded by God's good grace, a number of very solid believers. And I have to tell you, these believers, they were awesome. They made Christianity look so easy. I mean, they just seemed to glide along in grace like, we got this thing. But can I tell you, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I struggled. I was overwhelmed with fatigue. I was exasperated. I felt like a failure. Because living this newfound life out in Christ, though I wanted it with everything in me, I didn't know how to do it. And I felt like a miserable, exhausted failure. As I grew in my walk in Christ, I aspired with this hope that it's going to change one day. One day I'm going to turn the corner and go, ah, freedom, I've got it. But I found just the opposite. And maybe that's like you. The more I grew in my walk with Christ, the more frustrated I became, and the more I struggled, the more exhausted I was, and the more I felt like a failure. But I could not, and I would not, and I determined not to give up. I believe what Jesus, my Savior, said is true. If the Son of Man shall set you free, you should be free indeed. I have come to give him life and give it abundantly. If Christ has set you free from your sin, then you are free from your sin. I determined I was going to figure out by God's good grace what that meant and how to live that life. And God began to show me over a period of time that my problem was, was not a heart problem. It was a head problem. I did not understand God's grace. I did not understand that he who began a good work in you will complete it. I didn't understand that. You see, I needed to understand what sanctification is and what justification is. I needed to take that deep breath of, thank you, God. I can relax. Do you know why my problem was? I was trying to work it out myself. You see, I had been taught that you better pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, buddy. God's brought you this far, now you take yourself the rest of the way. Because after all, the Bible says God helps them who helps themselves. Right? No! The Bible doesn't teach that. You're saved by grace and you're changed by grace and you're brought into God's glory by His grace. You live by God's power, not by your own. And they needed to understand that. Instead of trying to work so hard inside to get everything just right, I needed to relax. And I needed to realize that God is at work in you, both the will and the work according to His good pleasure. God's at work in you. Oh, I hope you hear what I'm saying. Some of you are struggling so much. You're fatigued. You're discouraged. You think you'll never be able to break free from the tyranny of this sin. And God says, listen, my child. I've already broken those chains. You're dead to that old life of sin. And I want you to understand now how to live that out. And I promise you, I've not only made this a reality in your life, but I'm going to 
practically show you how to work that out in your life as well. Because I'm going to work in you both the will and the work according to my good pleasure. And I promise you that I have began this good work in you. I will complete it. <sighs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you today. Today, we, so many of us are broken and wounded and struggling for a past that we can't seem to shake, a tyranny that seems to hold on to us like shackles that, that, that burn and scrape our ankles and hold us in bondage. And how, how we long to be free, Jesus, in you. Lord, I pray, help us today by your great and mighty grace that is at work in us. Help us to guard against a grace that is misconstrued, that is twisted and perverted. And help us to realize and recognize that when your grace is at work in us, it's going to make us more like you. And that grace is abundant. That grace is the power to change that we don't have within ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for that grace. And Lord, help us to remember to know that we're no longer identified with the author of sin, where we came from, Adam. Now we're identified with the author of our salvation, Jesus. We have a new life in him. And Lord, you've promised you're going to work this new life out. We're identified. We we connected with him in his death and burial and resurrection. And so now we live in newness of life. Help us, Lord, I pray in your grace to have a transformed mind to understand what that means and apply that to our lives on a daily basis. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace, the grace that changes us and the power that does so that we do not have within ourselves. We love you, Jesus. We love you so much. And maybe you're here today, and today you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And today you find yourself in the very shackles of fear and uncertainty, anxiety that the world is experiencing, and we see it, the pressures of it mounting up more and more. Would you turn to Jesus Christ right now? Turn to him in your heart and your mind Turn to the very Prince of Peace, the Savior who died on the cross for you. Would you turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. Would you come into my life right now? Would you be the Prince of Peace in my life, a peace that surpasses all human comprehension? And give me your forgiveness and make me a child of God. And work that grace out in my life that I long for. Lord, I trust you. I believe you. That you gave your life for me. And now, Lord, I trust you. And give my life to you as my Savior. In Jesus' strong name, amen.